That would not have been good if I had fallen on the way up here. Um, you know, how do you follow that with that introduction? That was very kind of her. Thank you very much. You know, when in your groups tonight you talked about people that influenced your life. And I'm sure, I wish I could have listened to each one of you and what you shared because I think it's amazing how much we influence each other and how easily we can be influenced and impacted by somebody, even in a line in a grocery store. You know, you have a conversation or sitting around your table. I know I've been at Bible studies where just the conversation around your table influences you in a lot of ways, even more than maybe the speaker does. And I think that it's just the way that God can use people in each other's lives is just a beautiful thing. It's amazing to see all those influences, and whether we like it or not, sometimes for the worse, we end up influencing each other. You know, the one person who influenced me perhaps the most was my grandmother, just like Fanny Crosby, I mentioned in your questions. She influenced me. She was the first person who ever spoke about God or Jesus in a personal way. She told me that they wanted to have a relationship with me. And I was a small child when she told me this, and it didn't really quite sink in. I just thought, okay. And my grandmother, she grew up in northern Mississippi, and she lived on a dairy farm. She was an interesting lady. She, at one point, was crowned Miss Dairy of northern Mississippi. She was the kind of woman that would eat, on a regular basis, banana cream pie for breakfast. She... um, just, she loved me. She loved me unconditionally. She was one of those people that just wanted to spend time with me, wanted to tell me stories, wanted to just share life with me, and she just really believed in me. She was, in my mind, the quintessential country southern woman who really had a saying for everything. I don't know if you know people like this, but some of my favorites were, well, if you just start walking, your body is bound to catch up. Or this, she actually said this. I, you know, a lot of people just hear these things, but she actually would say to me, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I think her very favorite one that I heard a lot was pretty is as pretty does. Did you hear that? I heard it a lot. I didn't always know what that meant. The, another one that she said to me was, you don't always get to pick, so you need to play well the cards you get. And I just kind of would look at her and go, uh-huh. Because I just didn't know exactly, what do you mean by this? But as I've grown up and look back at that, I think what she was trying to encourage me to do was that when challenging circumstances come into your life, just to handle them well. And that influenced me tremendously. It really has made an impact on how I live my life. You know, some of us try to make a point to influence, whether it's our children, our coworkers, maybe it's an unbelieving family member, we want to make an impact. Maybe we just want to make an impact in this world. I think it would be hard-pressed to say that we haven't had thoughts in our minds of, are we going to make a difference? Are we going to contribute something to either the people that are around us or just the world that we live in? Well, Fanny Crosby was no different. She set out to make an impact on this world. That's what she wanted to do. And when she came to the point of trusting Christ as her Savior, it was how she lived her life that influenced thousands. Fanny Crosby was an amazing woman. She was the poet laureate of her time. She wrote 9,000 hymns in her lifetime. 
9,000 hymns. And she didn't start writing hymns until she was close to 40 years old. She lived until she was 95. And so if you do the math, which I asked my husband to do for me, if you do the math, you break it down, that's an average of about two to three hymns a week. It's just amazing when you think of that. Some of her hymns include To God Be the Glory, Blessed Assurance, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, and Safely in the Arms of Jesus. She helped influence the praise and worship of the music that we enjoy today by introducing just the concept of having words and lyrics that referred to God in a very real and personal way. She wrote for the common person. She really wanted everybody to be able to understand what was being said. And she had a lot of criticism in the day. People called her words simplistic. She was an accomplished pianist and harpist. She was a political activist. She was friends with many former presidents. She was closely linked with D.L. Moody and his evangelism movement. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with D.L. Moody. He's a, somebody you could spend an entire evening talking about as well. And the quickest way, I think, to tell you who he is is he would have been the Billy Graham of that time and that generation. Fanny Crosby also chose a life of poverty. She um, was dedicated to the least of these in New York City. She lived a long life. She died at an old age, 95. All of these things that she accomplished in her life gave her notoriety, long-lasting influence, but what I believe gave her the, the most influence was just how she lived her life. Fanny Crosby's life spanned pretty much, it, it kind of bookend on either side of the Civil War. She was born in 1820 and she died in 1915. And she, um, in August, or I'm sorry, in March of 1820, she was born in southeast New York, which is Putnam County. It's a very small, rural, farming, peasant community. And when she was about five or six weeks old, her family discovered that there was some sort of infection that she had in her eyes. Well, it was a real, you know, a country setting, and they only had a doctor who would pass through occasionally. The doctor wasn't planned to be there for months. And so the family, worried about their first newborn daughter, were asking around, trying to find what do we do. And they came across a man who claimed to be a physician that was passing through. And what he suggested that they do was take make compresses, heat them with coals so they were very, very hot, put them on her eyes repetitively until the infection would be drawn out by the heat. So the family did it, trusting this man who claimed to be a physician. The infection came out, but at the same time, she was left with huge scars over her eyes where she was only able to see perhaps dim colors or faint light. Essentially, she was blind. In November of that same year, Fanny's father, who was a farmer, was working out in the fields, and it was November, it was cold, rainy night, and he got ill and became very sick, and he died suddenly, which left Fanny's mother, at this time, if you think in the early 1800s, where she had to work in order to make ends meet. And Fanny went to live with her grandmother, Eunice. And that's where, as we talked about in your questions, there was the greatest influence for those first years in her life. Fanny grew up in a strict Puritan home where God was sovereign, the Bible was truth, and every struggle that you could possibly have was able to be entrusted to a very real and personal God. She was a passionate girl. She loved to be active. She would be out in the wee hours as soon as the sun came up into nighttime playing with the neighborhood community kids. 
there in her country, rural farm setting. And she continued this life with just this passion and this vigor until the children that she was playing with began to go to school. And she was blind, and there was no place for her. And it was at that point that she first recognized, with her grandmother's help, I'm going to have to entrust my blindness to the Lord. When she was eight years old, she finally saw a physician. And the physician told her what the family already suspected, that sight was never going to be a part of Fanny's life. Fanny recalls in her autobiography, she, she remembers that day coming home from the doctor and just weeping with her grandmother and asking God as they knelt down to pray together. She asked God, is my blindness going to keep me from being one of your children? And she asked him, in all of your great world, is there some little place for a blind girl like me? I think at eight years old, that is an insightful question. It's a question that I bet all of us, maybe not the exact same circumstances, but all of us have asked, is there some place for me in this world? Maybe it's not blindness, maybe it's something else about us, whether it's something that we've done or something that we just experience physical limitations, and we think, How can we have a place in this world? How can we actually be used by God? She was determined that her blindness was not going to hinder her. Fanny, through her grandmother's help and influence, was determined to be content with the life that God had given her. As a result of this prayer and her grandmother's influence, Fanny composed her first poetic verse at age eight. It says, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. So weep or sigh because I'm blind. I cannot, nor I won't. It was soon after this time that Eunice died, her grandmother. And it was on her deathbed that her grandmother asked Fanny, will you join me in heaven? And Fanny said, by the grace of God, I will. That night haunted Fanny for years because she struggled with her own assurance of salvation. In 1835, which was just four years after her grandmother died, Fanny went by herself to New York City to um, be a part of the newly formed New York Institution for the Blind. And it was there that she flourished. She continued writing poetry. She learned to play the piano and the organ She eventually became known as the greatest harpist in America at the time. She grew in her reputation and then began to be called the blind poetess. She also met her future husband there, Alexander Van Alstyne, who was also blind and a musician. Ultimately, she published four volumes of her poetry, and, and upon her graduation, she began to teach at the Institute for Blind. She also was a regular contributor to various New York m- newspapers as a columnist. She called Martin Van Buren, D.L. Moody, John Quincy Adams, and Grover Cleveland close personal friends. She was kind of a celebrity of the day. In 1849, cholera struck New York City. And specifically, it struck the New York Institution for the Blind. And as a teacher there at the Institute, Fanny really had to help those students that were dying. And she would be the one who was nursing them or administering medications. And along the way, 
She herself began to get very sick. She gave herself the medications without telling anybody else what was going on because she had such a heart for these students who were away from their families and she knew that she needed to care for them. So she keep, kept it to herself and took the medication, had a full recovery, but she referred to that as one of the most horrific times of her life. She said that it took years to hear a truck going down the street and not think of the call that would come out every morning where they would call, bring out your dead. Because so many people were dying, they would just load the dead bodies onto whatever their version of a truck was at that time and take them off to dispose of them where people went in to care for the rest of the people who still might have a chance. She, at this time, became gripped with this fear of death. She called it an anxiety of eternal destiny. She had enjoyed all this acclaim and the celebrity of being this blind poetess. But what she came to realize at this time was all of that held nothing and did nothing when she was face-to-face with death. It was at this point that Fanny's life really took a change and a turn of events. There was a revival that was coming through town in New York City, and she went that night, and it was there that she trusted Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. It was also at this point in time that she met a man named William Bradbury. Bradbury had heard her poems, had read her poetry, and was convinced that she could write hymns. He had a publishing company and had written several hymns himself, such as Just As I Am, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, He Leadeth Me. He, um, Fanny began to work for Bradbury's publishing company. He would give her themes, and whether it was the resurrection, whether it was God's faithfulness, whether it was loneliness and depending upon the Lord, whatever it was, he would give her a theme, and then she would write the words accordingly. It was not unusual for people to play music and then go up to Fanny and say, okay, what is this music saying? She wanted her hymns to influence people. She was determined to write hymns that would connect with the common man. She rejected the focus of the time. The hymns at that time were very much on sin and damnation. You are sinners, you are going to hell. And the way that they were written was in this lofty, intellectual, flowery language. And Fanny felt, okay, so if they need to hear for the hundredth time that you're going to hell, at least let them understand what you're saying. And so she really made a change in how hymns were. She wanted to be people to know that, yes, that they're sinners, but she wanted them to know in language they understood that there was hope, that there was an eternity with Jesus, and that right now we could enjoy that relationship with him. It's interesting because she defined a hymn as a song of the heart addressed to God. Her prayer was that her hymns would bring people to Christ. There are lots of stories about how her hymns did just that, which I'm going to share with you some of the stories about how her words brought people to Christ. And not only that, but the interesting ways in which God gave her the words for the hymns. So much of her hymns are based straight out of Scripture. My favorite, probably one of my favorites, is um, with Blessed Assurance. There was a woman that Fanny was friends with named Phoebe. Her husband actually was the person who started the MetLife Insurance. Um, so Fanny and Phoebe were good friends, and Fanny was over at Phoebe's house, and, she, and Phoebe was like, "Okay, well, I'm going to play this melody that I've been kind of toying around with." And so she sat down at the piano and and played, and Fanny went down to her knees with her eyes closed in position of prayer. Phoebe played the second time and looked over at Fanny and nothing. So Phoebe played the third time and Fanny looked up at her this time 
And her eyes were filled with tears, and she said, Phoebe, that song says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. And together they wept at what God was showing them. I think another story about that particular song, Blessed Assurance, was of a young boy who was terminally ill, and he was in a hospital dying. And he knew Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he wanted to share this hope with those around him. But he didn't know how to share the gospel. He didn't know what to say. So he decided, he got up in the morning in his bed and sang Blessed Assurance until he went to sleep that night. He just sang the song over and over again. And then reportedly 14 people came to Christ because they then understood the hope that comes with Jesus. Because of her deep need to know of this eternal destiny, Fanny often referred to death as this joyous expectation. I love the fact as I was listening and you guys were talking in praise time just about heaven and and that anticipation for heaven because that's what Fanny lived in her life. And that's what she wanted to communicate to people, that arriving home in heaven was the greatest joy anybody would ever behold. Another entertaining or interesting story about uh, her composing a hymn was in um, 1868. There was a frantic knock at Fanny's door, and it was a man named Mr. William Doon. They had collaborated on several hymns together, and he told her, I have only 40 minutes before my train leaves for Cincinnati, but I've got this melody that just keeps going on in my head, and it it even says he called it fresh and vibrating. And, um, And so he said, I just need to know what it says. I don't know what it says. And so she said, well, play it for me. So he played it for her, and as Fanny's style, she had her eyes closed in position of prayer and said nothing. So he played it again, and then all of a sudden, she began to sing, Safely in the Arms of Jesus. I'm going to read some of those words. Safe in the arms of Jesus, safe in his gentle breast, there by his love overshadowed, sweetly my soul shall rest. Hark to the voice of angels, born in a song to me, over the fields of glory, over the jasper sea. That joy and assurance of knowing that a believer is going to be safe in the arms of Jesus. That song has been sung at so many children's funerals to give moms that hope, to, for believers to know that their loved ones will be safe in the arms of Jesus. It's interesting, as I was preparing for this this week, went through, I was reading a blog, and, and it had um, a story on there. Some of you may know Stephen Curtis Chapman, who's a Christian musician, and his daughter recently died in an accident. And at her funeral... A song was sung um, by another musician that actually Stephen Curtis Chapman had written a couple years earlier for another family who had lost a child at a young age. And the words that he chose to leave the end of his song was safe in the arms of Jesus, safe in the arms of Jesus. So the longevity of what Fanny wrote and the influence that she had still today with one of our most popular contemporary recording artists who would remember the powerful words of knowing safe in the arms of Jesus. Another story of how somebody came to Christ through her words was with a lesser popular hymn called Only a Step to Jesus. The way this story goes was that there was a young country squire who openly professed a disdain for anything religious. He did not love God, he did not believe that God existed, and he was very vocal. However, he liked to sing, and the place where people congregated to sing was in a church, and they sang hymns. So it was a very common practice for this particular man to come into town, go sit down, listen to the hymns, sing along with them, and then leave. Well, this one particular Sunday, he came into the church, and he was late, so he only heard one hymn before he left. 
And it was Fanny Crosby's only a step to Jesus. When he left, that song had moved him so greatly, he couldn't get the words out of his mind. And again, just some of the words, only a step to Jesus, then why not take it now? Come in thy sin confessing, to him thy Savior bow. Only a step, only a step, come he waits for thee. Do not reject the mercy he freely offers thee. Well, over the next few days, he was just became obsessed with these words. And he kept playing them over in his mind and examining his life. The next Sunday, he walked into that church, he interrupted the services, and he said, I have to let you know what happened. I now profess Jesus Christ as my Savior, and this is why. The people in the, in the congregation just openly wept because here was somebody who was so against Christ, had come to Christ not by any of their conversations with him, but by the words of somebody who just wanted to be used by God. And the reason why we know these stories is because people were so moved by what Fanny's words were that they sought her out. There were several instances where people would travel to New York simply to hear Fanny speaking or singing at something to be able to tell her how God had used their words. Fanny knew the truth of God's word and she lived accordingly. She didn't focus on her circumstances to find her significance or her joy. She kept her eyes focused on God, who never changes and who is always faithful. On your verse sheet, just a couple of... 2 Corinthians 4.18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I think it's interesting. Fanny brings unique insight to the next verse in 2 Corinthians 5.7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Fanny kept her eyes on the Lord, not on her circumstances. One of my favorite quotes by Fanny was um, somebody asked her, if you could live your life all over again, would you have chosen to be able to see? It's a pretty standard question. And she said, no, I would remain blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I will ever see will be my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She lived her life knowing that eternity with Jesus was her home. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. She was often quoted as saying, My loss of sight is no loss at all. Fanny believed that without her blindness, she would have never had the platform to share the gospel as many times as she did. She felt somehow it made her voice stronger to have her sight being taken away from her. Fanny Crosby followed Christ. And if we look at um, Philippians 3, 7 through 8, she said, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge, greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. She followed him. She knew where she was going, and she followed Jesus, believing the truth within his word. She got it. Her perspective was not all about her. It was really all about Jesus. She was able to overcome her own hindrances, the things in our life that hold us down, in order to make it about God, not to make it about her. Not only was she a songwriter, Fanny Crosby also chose to live in poverty in New York City. She lived in New York's Bowery District, which was perhaps the poorest and definitely the roughest area of New York at the time. She believed that these men and women needed to know the hope of Jesus. They needed to know that they were valued by the creator of the universe, even if society didn't value them. 
She gave away any money that she had. She only kept enough for food and shelter. In fact, it was quite frustrating to a lot of her friends that she had a lot of wealthy friends, as I had mentioned earlier. They kept giving her money, and she kept giving it away. And it was very frustrating to them because what would happen, there was this great controversy that this publishing company wasn't giving her enough money and, oh, how horrible that she's living in these slums. And she just kept having to say, this is my purpose. These, this is why God put me here. She felt like that everything, her blindness, her fame, her notoriety, everything, even writing hymns, was so that she could be able to minister to the least of these in New York City. You know, maybe before you came here, I don't know how many of you knew who Fanny Crosby was. Maybe you have some hymn lovers in here who really did know who she was or had heard of her, perhaps. Um, Or maybe some people would know, oh, she's that blind person who wrote songs. And, you know, it was interesting because I grew up with my grandmother singing hymns to me all the time. Every time she would sit down at the piano and she would say, oh, let's sing Rock of Ages, let's sing this, and she would play and and we would sing, and and Blessed Assurance was always one of my favorites. There's something about those words that just, I I don't even know how to explain it even now. I wasn't a believer at the time. I didn't come to Christ until later in my teenage years. But even as a young child, there's something about those words that I just longed to be a part of I somehow wanted to, like, live in the words of that song. If you've ever experienced that with a song or not. Um, if you turn over your verse sheet, I wrote the words down to Blessed Assurance because I want to read each one of the words. <laughs> Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Vision of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his mercy, lost in his love. That chorus, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long, what a statement. Can you imagine really being able to say, this is my story, this is who I am, nothing else. My story is to follow Jesus and to praise him all day long. He has a child When I first heard that, I remember being confused, not being a believer, thinking, okay, what in the world would you have to praise God about all day long? Wouldn't that be kind of redundant just to say the things over and over again? I didn't understand. It just really confused me. And then as I grew older, hearing the same hymns, as I hit maybe in my rebellious teenage years, I started thinking, yeah, right. There's no way. She must have either been, one, a liar, and she's just saying it to make a good song, How can you really praise the Savior all the day long? Or perhaps she just never had anything difficult in her life, and so that's why she's praising God. Or maybe she's just some Mother Teresa kind of incredible person that she's just on a whole other playing field than the average Joe, and so that's how she can praise her Savior. When I found out that the author was blind, it kind of blew some of my theories on why she was saying this. And I knew I needed to understand why she made this statement. You know, I have a good life. I was, as 
Shelley mentioned in introducing, I, I have a wonderful husband. I have three beautiful children, amazing parents, incredible friends. I have a great life. However, just like you, I have bad days. There are times where things are just hard. All of us experience that. As Shelley mentioned, I had dealt with infertility for about 10 years, and the, result, the reason for that was that I have endometriosis. I also have a hip disorder that sometimes makes it difficult for me to walk, and I experience a lot of pain. Recently, I had about a three to four year period of time where my pain was so intense, it almost incapacitated me. It was very difficult for me to walk. There were times that I would go to take a step or even just up one step in our house. We didn't have any stairs in our house. We had just had, going from the playroom to the rest of the house, there was one step, and I would fall going just that one little step. I couldn't go to the grocery store because I couldn't carry the bags. I couldn't, we would, I loved to have people over to my house, and I couldn't do that anymore. I felt like that my life was pretty much put on hold. There were times I couldn't even care for my children, and I had to depend on others. It was a hugely humbling time. One particular um, example of that is I was at lunch with a friend of mine. Beth, my oldest, was about almost, or just turned three, and then Annika, my middle child, was still in an infant car seat carrier. And I was sitting at lunch, and I felt the pain starting to hit. And I knew I had to leave right now, or else I was not going to be able to drive her, my children home safely. I made it home, and our house was elevated to where there was no way to get into our house unless you climbed up a flight of steps. And so there I was. I had rushed home hoping, okay, maybe I'll get there, and I can still walk up the steps. I got my daughter out, both my daughters out, but I was carrying the car seat carry, and I went to take that first step up, and I thought, I can't do it. I can't make it up these steps because I'm afraid I'm going to drop Annika. So we all went out and sat on the front, um, on the driveway, and I had to call Jeff. And I had to say, can you come home and walk the girls up the stairs? It was hugely humbling. And what I felt like God was asking for me at that point in time, I felt like, look, I'm already a missionary staff. What more could you want from me? But what he did want from me was my life. And I'd already given him my life years and years ago, accepting him as my Savior. But he wanted every aspect of my life. He wanted my daily pain. He wanted my pride. He wanted all of my dreams, not just for myself, but the dreams that I had for my children. Because I didn't want them to their memories to be of their mom who had to sit in a recliner. I mean, my daughter would start faking, you know, they fake sicknesses. My daughter fakes hip pain. I mean, what child says, oh, my hip is hurting? But mine does. And um, it was just, it was humbling, as I said before, to be able to say, okay, how am I going to praise him with every aspect of my life? You know, perhaps your circumstances in life are different. Maybe they're more severe. Maybe they're less physical and more emotional. Whether it's loneliness, difficulties in your marriage or in your family or extended family, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The circumstances aren't the point. The point is, how do we handle our circumstances? What do we do with them? And are we willing to praise God in every single circumstance? Finally, I came to understand how to praise God in the midst of each day. And on your um, verse sheet, turn back over and look at 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. And this is Paul that's talking. 
He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my own weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace is sufficient for every circumstance. When we ourselves are strong, we do things in our own strength. But when we're weak, that's when God is able to work in us so that we become strong because it is he that is in us that is actually doing it. My life during those three to four years when I had so much pain, everything in my life was to get rid of the pain. That was my goal in life, to see as many doctors as I possibly could, to take the right vitamins, to try to exercise as much as I can, to do whatever I possibly could so that the pain would be gone. And what I had to learn was that my goal in life could not be getting rid of the pain. My goal in life had to be God. And it was at that point that I really understood this verse. It was at that point that I said, okay, my life is not my own. I'm just the one who's leading it. Whatever God wants to do in me, he can have it. And that had to be the same thing that Fanny Crosby was doing with her life. To be able to have such an eternal perspective and say, it doesn't matter whether I'm blind, it doesn't matter any of these things, what matters is what God is doing in me. Fanny shares in her autobiography her favorite verses, which are Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. If you have your Bible, please turn there. We're going to look at that together. Seven through eleven in chapter twelve. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's difficult to think when we have challenging circumstances in our life to think of them as discipline, right? We usually think it's punishment, not discipline. Well, discipline and punishment are very, very different concepts. We can get our mind wrapped around the idea of discipline as it pertains to us. I can be disciplined and work out. Some people can be disciplined and work out. I can be disciplined maybe to memorize scripture. I can be disciplined to come to Bible study. I can be disciplined to go to church. But when you think about the tough times in your life, it's hard to think of those as discipline. And yet he says here that he does it because it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. And those who have been trained by it, trained by that discipline in our life. Remember, our punishment was taken on the cross by Jesus. That's punishment. We all deserve death for our sins and for all the things that we do. But that was taken away on the shoulders of Jesus. He was perfect and took all of our sin. He was the sin substitute who died for us. 
And if we believe that Jesus is God, that he in perfection took on all of our sins, died on the cross, was buried, rose then on the third day, walked amongst his people, went to heaven and is preparing a place for us, if we've trusted that and he is our Savior, we get the rest of our life punishment-free. Discipline, yes. Training in righteousness, yes. But punishment, no. The discipline here in Hebrews, I believe, gave Fanny great comfort. She never says why it was her favorite verse in any of the things that I read. But she mentions it every time. And I think that's interesting because what is in here, I think, gave her purpose in her trials. I think it gave her perspective on who God is and that he loved her so much that he wanted what was best for her. He wanted her to share in his holiness. He had purpose for her life. He has purpose for our life. He allows the difficult things that we experience in this fallen world so that we, he can help to train us to be able to share in his holiness and to know, to experience that harvest of righteousness and peace. What Fanny Crosby did in her life is amazing. She accomplished many, many things. She forever is immortalized in hymnals. She helped introduce the praise music that we enjoy today by creating lyrics that have references to a very personal, real connection with God. She introduced the concept of repeating lyrics so that we get it, so that the common man understands. In many ways, she made God accessible, approachable to so many people. She was successful in so many aspects, but what really leaves an impact is how she simply followed Jesus. Wherever he led, by faith, not by sight, she followed him. When Fanny Crosby trusted her life, back at the revival that I shared with you earlier, she stated that previously she had been trying to hold on to the world and hold on to God with the other. She knew God. She knew who he was. She knew the Bible. She was a religious woman. She was also a very successful woman in the, Lord's, in the world's eyes. She had accomplished much. She had done what she set out to do. She didn't let her blind, blindness hinder her. She was now sought out by presidents and former presidents to speak with them. She had made her mark on the world. The world that seemed to hold so much satisfaction, she realized in the face of death meant nothing. She had one hand on the world and one hand on God. And what Fanny had to choose to do was to let go of the world and to cling to her Savior. Cling to her Savior. That's the thing from the moment that she trusted Christ onward. That's what she said over and over again. She told everyone, whether you were homeless, whether you were poor, whether you were wealthy or successful, what she has told the world over and over again in all of her hymns is cling to the Savior. So I ask you, what are you clinging to? Is there something that God is asking you to let go of in this world so that you can truly cling to him and follow him? Clinging to the world is only going to disappoint us. Success is going to fail. People are going to walk away and disappoint us. The things that we hold on to so tightly that we think are going to give us that satisfaction are going to slip through our fingers where we're almost grasping at air. But the only thing that's going to hold on forever is our Savior. He promises us. He tells us that he's never going to change. She knew that the intimate dependency and relationship in walking with the Lord while still on earth was just a taste of what was to come in heaven. 
That gave her hope. It gave her purpose. It gave her something to move forward toward. She knew the blessed assurance that came with a relationship with Christ. She knew the delight of submitting to God and the vision of glory she would one day see. So what are you clinging to? What is your story? If you had to say, this is my story, this is my song, what's it going to be? I would love to be able to say that my story is praising my Savior regardless of any circumstance all the day long. I'm going to close by praying, and then hopefully Luann is going to be here to sing. There we are. You pray for us. Father God, I thank you for never changing. I thank you for loving us, for pursuing us. Lord, I thank you that you want us to cling to you, and you are so trustworthy. Please help each and every one of us to let go of the things in the world so that we can follow you. Thank you for the blessed assurance you do give us. In Jesus' name, amen.